Good morning, everybody. Happy Memorial Day weekend. It is good to be back. Uh, it's a good time camping last weekend, and I really missed you guys. So it's good, it's good to be back here at Hollis Center. Uh, I've entitled this message, Understanding the War. Understanding the War. And we're going to be in Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 13. This is kind of a weird sermon. Not because I'm weird, but uh, because we divide the text in half. Normally we don't do that. Normally we take what seems like one solid thought of Scripture and we work through it in one sermon. And Steve and I have kind of divided it up into two chunks because there's a lot in here. So I'm just going to kind of touch down in these verses and teach on spiritual warfare. And that's going to provide an introduction for Steve to finish off the passage and what the passage is teaching us. So bear with me. This is going to be a little bit different than normal. But I'd like you to think about this idea. When we don't understand the war, we might shoot the wrong target, or we might not even take arms to begin with if we don't understand the war. Uh, you know, we're looking over at Ukraine, and it's kind of been a wake-up call for a lot of us, because for many of us, it's the first time we've seen ground war in the Western world. And imagine that that's happening here. Imagine that there's an army on the outskirts of Hollis. It's hard to imagine, but imagine it. And imagine that you don't know that there is an army on the outskirts of Hollis. If you didn't know that that army was coming, you would not have the time to prepare, the time to get away, the time to defend. And if you misunderstood what was happening, if there was a miscommunication, a misunderstanding of the war, you might go after the wrong target. Now, I think the same is true of the spiritual war. We use this term in church, spiritual warfare. We're going to kind of unpack that a little bit because there's a lot of definitions floating around, a lot of ideas floating around about spiritual warfare. But it's the basic idea that we live in a world that is more than physical, that there are spiritual forces, and some of these spiritual forces are uh, fallen angels and their leader, Satan, the adversary, and they are working behind the scenes to oppose Christ's reign and oppose the church. And I think there are two positions that, that we as Christians tend to gravitate towards on spiritual warfare, neither of which is really healthy. And one of them that I think we here in, in our church culture would tend to struggle with the most is just pretending it doesn't exist. You know, of course we read the Bible, and yeah, there are demons and there are angels, and yeah, you know, we've read about that. But when we get down to it, we often just pretend it doesn't exist. We kind of stick our heads in the sand. We don't really think about the demonic. We don't really recognize that there is a spiritual war that we have a part in. We think very much in terms of people and places and things. And yet the other extreme is to become obsessed with it to become so focused on this big, grand, uh, vague idea of what's going on in the spiritual world, that we are of no earthly good, or, or even worse, uh, that we become so obsessed with it uh, that it just becomes our solution to everything. I mean, some of you might have that crazy Christian aunt that everything's a demon. 
right? You knock over the glass of milk, it's a demon. Someone honks at you on the road, it's, it's a demon. I, I, these people are real, right? That they're, they're people you might interact with that just, that just blame everything on the spiritual and don't really reason through what they're going through in life. You may even meet people that might say that every member of a certain political party is possessed by a demon. I'm not naming any names. Right? So there's, there's a lot of baggage around this concept. But here's the core. Satan and his fallen horde seek to keep us trusting in anything that is not our creator. Satan and his fallen horde, they seek to keep us as human beings from trusting in, to keep us trusting in anything that is not our creator. Their fate is sealed. They know that their end is coming. And so they're trying to do as much damage as they can and keep image bearers of the living God away from the God who made them. And this plays out in a number of different ways. But we're in the book of Ephesians and in the book of Acts, we actually see two, three major events that took place in Ephesus before this book was written that would have probably been in the minds of the Christians in Ephesus. Now, I'm not going to read the passage, but I'm just going to summarize them. We have naked exorcists, an expensive bonfire, and a massive riot. So what do I mean by that? Well, So in Acts chapter 19, the Christians were sharing the gospel, people were getting saved, and specifically there was power following these Christians, especially the Apostle Paul. He was able to cast demons out and and combat these spiritual forces, and so there were some Jewish exorcists that they made their money dealing with demons, and so they thought, hmm, maybe it would be a good idea to invoke Jesus and do what Paul does. So they go in, they try to deal with this demon, uh, seven, of them, seven of them, these seven sons of Sceva, and they go in and they say, yeah, get out of here in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. And the demon just goes, <laughs> who the heck are you guys? Like, I know Jesus really well, and I've heard of Paul, but who are you? And he beats them naked and bloody, and they run away screaming. That's maybe the David Fry paraphrase of that. But it doesn't go well for them, right? So here we see that there is power in the demonic. These are beings with some level of power. And Ephesus at this time, Asia Minor at this time in the first century, was a mixing pot of religions. It was a petri dish of cults. It was a place steeped in the dark and the spiritual. And this letter is being written to Christians who are in that type of environment. Now, after that account in Acts 19, we see that a lot of the people who were trusting in Jesus were bringing their occultic artifacts and objects, and they were having them burned. And it says that this was actually a very costly amount of objects that they were burning. Well, why are they burning them? Well, these objects actually, there actually is some sort of spiritual force behind these. Uh, These are not just meaningless trinkets. There is a spiritual force here, and these people are cutting ties with that and burning those implements. And then after this, we see there's a riot. Because the people in Ephesus, Ephesus had a great temple to Artemis, and there was a huge industry around creating idols, especially idols of Artemis that you could kind of take home as a souvenir. 
Uh, and they're noticing that their business isn't doing too well because people in Ephesus are becoming Christians and they are destroying their idols rather than buying new ones. And so they have a big riot. There's, there's a whole account of that. You should go read it yourself. And in that account, I think we see the deceptive side of the demonic. That here we have an entire city that has been deceived into false religion, that they are pursuing something that is not their creator, whether they truly believe in Artemis or, rather, or maybe they just really want to make money and pursue their dreams that way, you have people who are deceived. Power and deception. Power and deception. In Ephesians 2, verses 1 and 2, it says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We as, as Christians, as Protestants, here in the Western world, we're very familiar with the idea of being dead in our trespasses. We say, yes, amen, before Christ, I was dead in my sins. There was nothing I could do to gain favor with God. Sin was bringing death in my life. Praise the Lord that he saved me. But it's interesting that Paul says that when we were living that way, we were following the course of this world, and this world is under the authority of the prince of the power of the air, Satan that Satan, in some sense, is a ruler of this world. Now, yes, God is the ultimate ruler. He is the creator. But in this fallen world, Satan has some level of authority. And we see this when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. Satan comes to him and he says, look, bow down and I'll give you all the kingdoms. Now, Jesus combats that by saying, "Uh uh-uh. That's not going to happen. But he doesn't say, well, no, you don't have authority over those. No, Jesus actually recognizes that he does, in a sense. That Satan has some sort of authority in this world. All human cultures and systems are first and foremost tainted by our human desire to do things that are contrary to God's law. But secondly, there are evil spiritual forces at work. That's something as, as Westerners we don't really tend to recognize. But anyway, that's, that's enough of that. Let's get into the text. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 13. Once again, I, I, this is just the intro to the armor of God. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. We need spiritual strength. There's a a battle that is raging, and we as weak people, we need strength from the living God to stand firm in that battle. And God offers us armor. Steve is going to talk about that next week. But we are to take a stand against the schemes of, of the evil one, against the schemes of Satan, the adversary, the deceiver. And 
And when it talks about these forces, it uses the term rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, spiritual forces of evil. And it's, it's interesting, I, Paul just kind of hints at it in here. So I'm going to draw on some other passages to kind of fill in the whole picture. But when he's talking about the work and rule of these evil powers, it seems that he's saying that these forces are behind and working in world powers. Right In verse 12, there's this mix of rulers and authorities, but then it goes to the cosmic scale. That when he's talking about spiritual warfare, he's talking about more than just you know, these occultic interactions where people had demons and the demons are cast out, but he's actually talking about demons having a bigger game plan than just some scary instances. And I believe this game plan folds out in two different ways, both power and deception. Deception and power. I mean, here it even says the word schemes. It says, uh, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Satan is a schemer. He's tricksy. He's the father of lies, as John 8, says. Satan is not a bulldog. He is a dragon. He is a lion. And he is a serpent. He is crafty. He has a plan. We see this in the garden, right? In the, in the first man and the first woman, they're in this beautiful, perfect place created by God. And when the serpent comes in, he doesn't come in with wings and flames and fangs. He comes in with lies, twisting of the truth. Did God really say you couldn't eat that? Nah, he's just holding out on you. He, he's afraid that you're going to be like, become like him because when you eat this, you will become like him. And doesn't it look good? That's what Satan does. The fall of humanity doesn't start uh, with, with swords and fire and brimstone, but deception, a false narrative. Satan is a schemer. He's a deceiver. But there's also power there. This passage refers to cosmic powers, and we see throughout the Gospels all of these power interactions where there were people afflicted by demons in various ways, and Jesus' followers, and especially Jesus, would cast these demons out. We, we saw that guy, right, who was cutting himself with stones, living amongst the graves. They tried to chain him. He'd break the chains. Why? He had a legion of demons inside of him. Right? There, are, there is power there. But what it seems that Paul is referring to in this passage more specifically is power that, it is as, that is working in and through the systems of this world, the governments of this world, the political powers of this world, that spiritual authority is tied to them. But we need to remember Romans 13 because... I. As Americans, we have this love-hate relationship with the government. Sometimes the government is like our best friend. You know, 4th of July, we're shooting stuff in the air. Yeehaw, America! And then the rest of the time, we're like, oh, the government. We start throwing tea in the harbor again. Or gasoline this time, I guess. But 
We have the kind of this love-hate relationship with the government. So sometimes our tendency is to get very angry at the government. And yeah, the government is the devil and the government's evil. But Romans 13 tells us to obey the government. That, that authorities are established by God to punish evil. It doesn't always work out perfectly in a fallen world, but that's God's design for government. And the apostle Peter He told us to honor the emperor. So how do we bring that idea together with this picture of demonic forces working in and through the governments and systems of the world? Well, those actually come together really well because our problem isn't the people. Generally speaking, our problem isn't the people. There's a bigger war going on. Now that comes out through people and there have been some horribly evil people in human history. History is full of antichrists. But our problem is less the systems, less the people, and more that we live in a fallen, broken world that Satan still has a measure of authority in. We need to keep that in mind. You could say that a third attack that Satan uh, possesses is an attack of temptation. But if we're honest with ourselves, we do a good enough job tempting ourselves with sin. I don't think Satan is on every one of our shoulders telling us, hey, go do that really evil thing that you already want to do. We have wicked hearts that already go after evil things. So I think deception and power are kind of the two elements of spiritual warfare that are worth our time looking at today. Now, in the Old Testament, we have... We have a number of of prophecies, and and in the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation, we have these bits of this really wacky apocalyptic imagery. We we have these visions with all these crazy images that we love to debate about and get really confused by, and so we we tend to maybe avoid Revelation or get like way too deep into Revelation, kind of get nerdy about it. So rather than than touch down in, in some specific verses, I'd just like to draw out some images Because the book of Revelation was given to people in the first century. And so it should not mean to us something it did not mean to them in the first century. That it was given to Christians who were being persecuted for their encouragement. And when you, when you really get into the book of Revelation, especially if you just read it, lay aside, lay aside all the commentaries and charts, and you just read it, you realize it is a continuation of so many of the symbols and ideas we saw in the Old Testament prophets. And just reminding God's people of the struggle they are in and that Jesus wins in the end. In the book of Revelation, there's a dragon and two beasts. A dragon and two beasts. And the dragon represents Satan. That's generally well accepted. And then the first beast seems to be this sort of government power that that is inspired by, supported by, controlled by the dragon. And then there's a a second beast, and the second beast seems to have more of a spiritual, religious element to it. And this beast is convincing people to then trust in the other beast. It's almost like you have this unholy demonic trinity in the book of Revelation. And at one point in these visions, the uh, Apostle John, he sees this harlot riding on the beast. And he's kind of taken back by how beautiful she is, and he needs to be reminded, look, this harlot representing Babylon, representing the world powers and culture, it doesn't end well for her. 
That even though it is the tendency of human empires time and time and time and time and time again in human history to abandon God's ways, follow their desires, and knowingly or unknowingly follow the way of the prince of the power of the air, it does not end well. It ends in destruction. And this harlot is compared to a different woman in the book of Revelation. There's a woman there representing the people of God. And this woman is being chased by the dragon. This woman uh, gives birth to the Messiah. And this woman is hiding from the dragon in the wilderness. You have these two pictures, right? The harlot and God's people. Babylon and God's people. And this is, this is what I find very encouraging, but I find it very challenging, is this is where the struggle is for us as Christians, is we want what the harlot has. We want prosperity. We want peace. We want to have fun. And that is what is offered when a people group follow the, the pattern of this world, the prince of the power of the air, is it's fun and it's easy and it seems prosperous for a time, but in the end, God judges that and it doesn't work. And yet, the sign of God's true people, his church, is that the dragon is trying to kill them. Is that encouraging? Well, it's encouraging if you're being persecuted. If it's encouraging if you feel that pressure of the enemy against you and your family and your church is that that is a sign that you are a true believer that Satan is actually trying to stop you. His forces are actually pushing against the church. And yet so often as Christians, we want what the harlot has, but that leads to destruction. We want what the culture has, but that leads to destruction. First Peter 5, verses 8 through 9, it says, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. And we've heard that verse a number of times. That was just verse 8. And we tend to think of that very much as a personal struggle, like that the lion's coming for us individually. And certainly, Satan and his forces do push against us as individuals, but it continues on in verse 9. It says, resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Here the apostle Peter is saying, look, Satan is out to get you. Demonic forces are looking to destroy the church destroy and devour God's people, resist the evil one, have faith, resist him, stand firm. Why? You're not alone. Isn't that a huge encouragement? Uh, that in Satan seeking to destroy and devour God's people, we are not alone. In fact, believers around the world are experiencing similar kinds of attacks. This is spiritual warfare. Now, it looks a little bit different from place to place. Some places, the governments are extremely cruel to Christians. In some places, uh, the governments are fairly kind, and they're just elements of those governments that are being affected against the church. But I think we should, we should, we should take this as a wake-up call. 
that if we do not feel the attack of the evil one, if we do not see that there are systems and there are powers and there are forces at work against what we are trying to do as Christians, then maybe we aren't living the Christian life because the sign of God's people is that they're being chased by the dragon, that there is a spiritual war. The core of spiritual warfare, if you've been asleep up until this point, remember this, the core of spiritual warfare is trusting God and staying on task. The core of spiritual warfare is trusting God and staying on task. Because this is where the danger comes in, right? We kind of, we kind of peel back the curtain. We begin to decipher some of the clues we have in Scripture. We go, wow, there's a lot going on. And we start trying to put all those pieces together. And the temptation is we get so focused on the big picture that we miss out on the fact that God wants to call us to stand firm in faithfulness where we are now. There's an illustration that N.T. Wright used in one of his commentaries, and, and I've kind of expanded on it a little bit. But he gives this illustration of, of being a soldier. Now, a soldier's responsibility is to follow orders in their sphere of influence. Their job is not to be a general, right? The general, he's in the tent or he's in the HQ, and the general has to have an understanding of what's going on across the battlefield. He has to know, are we, are we losing over here? Do we need reinforcements over here? Where are those weapons coming from? They, they need to have a comprehensive understanding of the battlefield, but that is not the responsibility of every soldier. That soldier needs to know the rules of engagement, and they need to know their orders, and they need to, to obey their orders. That's what a soldier does. See, God has not called us as soldiers in a spiritual war. He has not called us necessarily to be the general. Really, he's the general. He's given us a few clues of the big picture, but we don't need to know the full picture. The war is way bigger than we could even understand. We need to be faithful in the trench. And yet the two temptations for us as Christians is to either become obsessed with the big picture or to be on the sofa rather than be in the trench and hold the line. I think one of Satan's greatest tools is distraction. And so that's a danger in spiritual warfare. We need to both recognize that there's a danger in obsession with spiritual warfare, and that there's a danger with, of ignoring spiritual warfare because both play right into Satan's hand. God's calling us to trust him and stay on task. And to not be run down or discouraged by the forces that are against us as God's people. So what does that look like? What does this look like? Well, I think we've, we've definitely encountered various people uh, in our time in church. And so there might be names coming to your mind as I go through these. But recognize that there is a part of all of this in our hearts in various different ways. It is, it is especially common among men in churches, but also women too, to like freak out about politics or theology. And yet, at the same time, lack personal holiness in their lives. Like, that's just a tendency of the human heart to be so focused on books and books and books and, and watching this and talking about this politician or this theological idea and to just nerd out about that stuff. I mean, I've been there. I mean, I, 
I'm a Bible school graduate in my 20s. Like, I'm the target audience for this type of misbehavior. And being so focused on the big picture and yet missing the basic moments of faithfulness in my life. I mean, it's, it's almost stereotypical for, for, for young Christian men, especially young Christian men in Bible school, to be just obsessed with theological debates and be reading book after book after book and yet be enslaved to pornography. It's epidemic. It's, it's a recognition of the big picture. And yeah, we need to defend the church against bad theology. We need to understand what's going on in the word. But God's calling us to holiness in our lives to stand firm against the devil now, in our friend group, in our families, to speak truth to one another. But, but the flip side is also dangerous. The flip side is also dangerous. You know, uh, the, the average American only reads like one book after they graduate college. We have better access to the written word of God than people who have lived in basically all of human history. And now with the internet, you can access all sorts of good sermons and podcasts and eBooks, and it's just amazing the Christian content that, could, that we could consume and build ourselves up in and become stronger believers. And yet, I have spent way more time watching YouTube or dumb little reels or commenting on your Facebook posts we should be strengthening ourselves in the faith so that we can stand against the attacks of the enemy. I'm really tempted to start getting into more application, but Steve's got that next week. So you can see the awkward position I'm kind of in. Thanks, Steve. Yeah, it's, it's this balance, right? It's a balance of being aware of what's going on but also recognizing our duty, which is those around us and ourselves. Our duty is not the big picture. And so, so while we, I feel like a conspiracy theorist, honestly, talking about some of this stuff and talking about this big picture, you know, demonic principalities and influence over governments. At the end of the day, God's calling us to speak truth and love others and read his word here, now, your own heart, minister to those around you. And that plays out in a number of different ways. Steve will talk more about that next week. But the core of spiritual warfare is trusting God and staying on task. We, we today, we live in a time of distraction. I think that is the number one scheme of the enemy here in America for us. Predominantly is distraction. There are Christians in other parts of the world that they are in very dark times and they are seeing the fangs of the dragon. They're dying for the faith. But regardless, we need to be aware of what's going on, understand the times, trust God, and stay on task for his glory. So here's, here's our application. Ask yourself the question, how can I most glorify God in all things today? How can I glorify God in all things today? How can I make his name great? How can I serve him well today? Do it as best you can, trusting that God is your real protection and strength. None of us are going to do it perfectly. But ask yourself that question. How can I glorify you today? How can I seek truth today? And then do it as best you can. 
knowing that God is your real source of strength, your real source of holiness, your real protection. Let's, let's stand firm, recognize the battle, but also just be faithful with what God has given us here and now. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we've just talked about some confusing things, things maybe we don't think about. And so I pray you'd help all of us, myself included, to just sift through these ideas. And to most importantly, recognize what you are calling us to do today in our lives. That we would recognize the schemes of the evil one and resist them. We would speak truth to one another, love one another. I pray, Lord, that you would build up your church. I pray that you would strengthen Hollis Center Church against the attacks of the evil one. And as we are more and more faithful in, in glorifying you and reaching others, Lord, we will see more and more attacks of the enemy. There'll be more pressure on us, more distractions, more temptations. And so I pray that you would help us to stand firm. To be faithful, stay on task. In the powerful name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.